the Skeptopus Podcast. Welcome to the Skeptopus Podcast, where we shove 14 tons of raw data into an hour so you'll have something smart to say at the water cooler, you parrot. I'm a Captain Storm. And I'm Dangerous Dan. Each week, our drink team tackles an interesting topic, and we apply some critical drinking to it. If a panelist gets proven wrong, they have to drink. So send in your corrections or comments to the show at skeptopus at gmail.com. For criticism or rants, please include the phrase, I'm a hater, in the subject line. Join our sponsor, the San Diego Skeptics, on Facebook or Meetup at sandiegoskeptics.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes, where you can find links and summaries in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.skeptopus.com. Today joining us, we have the greatest X-Wing pilot in the Valencia North Valley Homeowners Association, Anna Maltese. Made the Kessel run in under 12 parsecs. And Dr. Shai Zulai, professional bullshit detector. Bullshit levels are off the charts here. <laughs> All right, let's get this thing rolling. Call out your poison, Anna. Rum. Aztec gold. Rum. Rum. All right. Dan? <laughs> yeah. Whew. Okay. We had a little break. Tell us about it. Uh, yeah, pardon the break between podcasts, but we were on holiday in Brazil with the Skeptopus mapping the River of Doubt, which is an actual river. So, uh, yeah, look it up. Uh, this week we have a grab bag of topics. Uh, Shai is going to be talking about the effectiveness of different types of learning. I'll be talking about agnosticism. Anna will be talking about contrails versus chemtrails. And Dan, about how your career may influence your worldview. So let's start with uh, Shai. Tell us about different types of learning. Well, thank you, Storm. Uh, so I've been interested in uh, teaching and learning for many, many years. Uh, teaching is one of my favorite things. And I had the pleasure a couple weeks ago of uh, hearing a lecture by a preeminent scholar of different types of learning, uh, Robert Bjork from UCLA. He came to UCSD and gave a lecture. One of the main things he talked about was these two major subtypes of learning that, that we think about uh, in the field of neuroscience and psychology. Those two types are massed learning, M-A-S-S-E-D, and interval learning. And you guys probably know what both of these are. Massed learning is similar to cramming for a test where you do all your learning uh, the night before and you hope that Everything you need to know for the quarter or for the test you're about to take has managed to sink into your brain. You take the test and you subsequently forget everything. Interval learning is when you uh, segregate out your learning over over the course of a day or the course of weeks or the course of months. But um, the important thing being that there is time in between uh, your learning sessions. Unsurprisingly, we've known this for, for quite some time. For the most part, interval learning is better in terms of actually retaining things over the long term and in terms of, you know, w w understanding as a whole what's going on. However, there are occasions when mass learning can temporarily provide a, a slight benefit, and that is in the case of cramming for a test. Uh, you will actually do better if you um, have studied for it just the night before. Hmm. So I can go into, at this point... Uh, the reasons for that. I didn't know if you guys had any preliminary questions. Do you, well, do you have any studies on if you do both, like interval learning for a while and then cram for the test right before? Is that better or worse than just cramming for the test right before? That is definitely better than cramming for the test right before. Got it. So basically, the 
what I loved about about this topic was not only the fact that there's these two types of learnings and that we can like talk about them in a meaningful way, but also how people respond to being told which is better. And I'll get to that at the end. And Storm, you and I have talked about this a little bit already. Yeah, we did. So I had a question. Was My understanding before was that mass learning was where you did repetition of the same subject material over and over in groups. So let's say you wanted to learn the definition of a word, you would sit and look at that word over and over and over, or whatever the topic was over and over. Interval is where you would look at all the words you have to learn one after the other sequentially versus groupings of the same thing over and over again. It, it, it's both. The key is with interval learning, the key is that you are studying, that there are different topics interleaved. And one topic, in, you know, one way of thinking of interleaving can be over time. So you could study, you know, Spanish uh, two hours on Monday, two hours on Tuesday, two hours on Wednesday, rather than studying it for six hours all on one day. Um, and because you're doing other things in between those times, you're always learning. There's always some kind of learning going on. It, experimentally, oftentimes, uh, due to the constraints of having people come back into the lab repeatedly, we talk about interval learning or interleaved learning as um, exactly what you were describing, where uh, oh, I'll give you an example of one of the experiments that was done. So uh, Dr. Bjork wanted to test how well people could learn the styles of different kinds of artists. And so what he did is he got a series of exemplars of different artists, Picasso, Gaudi, etc. And the, the two ways that they would be presented to the subjects is in one case, you would see all the Picassos, one right after the other. And then you would see all of the Dali and then all of the next artist and the next artist. And the subjects really liked that style of learning. They thought, okay, like I'm kind of getting a sense for, you know, what, this particular style is what it means for something to be a Monet because a Mo this is a Monet and then this other thing which is different but I know it's a Monet also so I can see these similarities and I'm learning these similarities the interleaved learning you would take all of the paintings mix them all up and just present them one after another but in in no order and the subjects were again told which painting belonged to which artist but they were not but they were not all together and they weren't made they they re didn't really report making comparisons from one painting to the next because it doesn't make sense to compare a Monet to a Picasso to see what the similarities are does that make it sense it seems like it'd be a lot more difficult cuz you're not like making the connections between exactly the paintings by the same artist exactly yeah, there are no themes that tie them together correct and in fact that's generally what people feel when you ask them which method of learning is better they far and away prefer this massed learning where you're showing them all of one artist and then all of another artist and all of the third etc now the great thing is you then test them and even though they think they learned better with the massed learning in fact the opposite is true the interleaved uh, really? learning they they do far far better um and and it, that's not true for everybody there's a small percentage of people who will um 
who who do do better with the mass learning uh, and it could just be a statistical you know every now and then someone happens to do better or there could be some people who actually learn better that way it's not quite clear hmm. but you tell people this in advance you tell people like okay so there's these two types of learning we're going to do these two types of tests most people learn better with this interleaved style so just keep that in mind. They take all the tests. They and then after they take the tests, the the researchers ask them, "Okay, which test did you think you did better on? Which learning did you do better?" And they say, "Oh, definitely the mass learning," mm-hmm. which is like never the case. Hmm. And then you explain more clearly. Okay, well, you know, not only are uh, is it true that most people tend to do better with uh, the interleaved, but uh, a lot of people think that they do better mis- with mass learning, but that's not really true. It's a fallacy. But there are still a certain percentage that do do better. And it, it doesn't matter. People won't change their mind. They're still convinced that the mass learning is better. And if they're told that they can now, they're going to they, they, they're going to learn a new thing, and they can take a test. They're going to take it be tested afterwards and be rewarded based on how they did in the test. They will still prefer to do the mass learning over the interleaved learning. Wow. So the the interesting thing here is not just that people are doing better with interleaved learning but that they refuse to believe it. <laughs> and and so it really the only way you can start to convince people that interleaved learning is better is to explain to them not just the details of this particular study, but all the research leading up to it, all the research explaining what's going on, including the fact that most people erroneously say that the that they are going to do better masked. And if you give them all that information, at that point, about half the people believe you. <laughs> so that's confirmation bias at work then. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Interesting. I think it'd be tough to, uh, from what it sounds like with the painting experiment, when you see one artist and their paintings one after another, it kind of builds a familiarity, I would think, and a confidence that you know that artist now. Like, okay, now I know Monet. That's my thing. And it, and it, it, I know it feels good for people to do things that are familiar to them. And, I, you know, even if you know you're going to do better in a different way, I think people would still, you know, I, I wonder, I don't know if you have any right, thoughts right. on and why it is that people really like Mass learning. Well, well, I, I think you, you actually hit the nail on the head. I mean, w- when I learned personally and when I was doing, you know, something similar to this test, I wanted, I saw a Monet and then I'm like, okay, I think I have an idea of what a Monet is. I want to see another one to see if I'm right. Mm-hmm. And then I see another one and I'm like, okay, yeah, I kind of get a sense of what a Monet is. Now let me see another one. And you, you keep repeating that and you're like, yeah, 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 I get what it is now. The thing is, is that you that that's just a, a for most people that's wrong and, <laughs> and it, it probably what's happening is yes there is some type of learning happening where you're seeing the similarities between a particular artist but more learning is happening and a different type of learning is happening when you are seeing the differences between artists and and it's those differences that actually then you're able to to use when you're taking the test later on yeah so see i think i'm an interleave learner like right from the start when we were having this conversation before i immediately thought of several examples where i prefer interleave learning than math learning. But both for yourself and for when you're teaching, correct? Yeah, exactly. I teach sword fighting and I've always hated drills. Don't like them. I much prefer sparring. Sparring is interleave learning. Hmm. Drills are math exactly. learning. 
Um, another, the other thing that came to my mind before was uh, Elizabeth uh, Loftus's work on when when they put suspects in front of people and they have them do a lineup. Mm-hmm. She discovered that it was much better for producing a, a result if you showed the uh, the the perpetrators uh, sequentially rather than in a group. Yes. And we- that it was it was hugely better, in fact, so that they've changed the entire criminal justice system to reflect that in the past 15 years. Well, which is counterintuitive because you would think like, oh, I can see all these five or six people yeah, at they once show a group and now of I can six. make comparisons. They used to show a group yeah. of six people, I think, and, and mm-hmm. now they do – they sh- give them a stack of pictures and they sequentially look one. through them. Mm-hmm. So can you break down in the brain what's going on in each of these learning – types well and why one seems to be better partly we can okay so so at one level when you're talking about interleaving over long distances of time uh what's happening is that you're allowing sleep and other activities you're allowing what you've learned to sort of like sink in especially with sleep if you're doing it over the course of multiple days you you do in fact remember more um and in fact and what happens is you end up getting this like deep understanding and this deep learning with mass learning what seems to be happening is that you're getting this immediate activation of different things that are related to one another and so you have so you can think about it as like you've got two types of knowledge you have deep knowledge that's well understood that you've got access to in your brain but you might not have it right now and then you've got the knowledge that you have access to right now because of something you're in the middle of doing or something you've been like practicing and you're familiar with mass learning does help you in the short term to get access to the stuff like immediately but interleaved learning over the long term, especially over time, gives you this deep knowledge that you just don't get with mass learning. When you do these mass learning techniques, when you do cramming, you'll do really well in the short term and then you'll forget everything. So if you actually want to know the subject you're learning, you're much better off to spread out your learning over time. Furthermore, with with the different types, with, with interleaved learning in a short time, we're not 100% sure exactly why it's better, but... It seems to have to do with the fact that when you are experiencing a new thing, like I'll I'll take Storm's sword fighting example. So when you learn to say parry a blow, there's some type of motor program that you need to call up and you need to remember in order to go ahead and activate, you know, that muscle memory memory of parrying a blow. But when you're doing so, – so now if you do a drill and you're parrying it ten times, you're calling up that same thing again and again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. What, what actually seems to be better, though, is when you're doing some type of sparring where first you have to call up the program to parry and then you have to call up the program to attack and then you have to call up the program to do this. Every time you're calling that up, it's like refreshing the thing in your head. It's, it's activating the system of – uh, knowledge associated with that particular action or that particular thing you're trying to learn. And it's the act of recalling this thing or doing this new thing again and again and again. And the fact that it's new, that seems to be what's important hmm. in terms of learning over time so and the interleaved process. So it's kind of like digging it deeper and deeper and deeper each time rather than just keeping it on the surface for a long amount of time. Exactly. Then throwing it away. Exactly. Is is context 
associated with that too because you know you have the one you have a uh, an upward parry and then a downward thrust but then somebody comes at you with something else after the parry and you have to do this is it does does that uncertainty kind of play any role in helping it, it may um, with there's something interesting that happens with repeated physical actions where you you almost it start second guessing yourself because you're you're like trying to control all these little particular things where in actuality you end up most of the time doing better if you're not trying to like hold your hand this specific way and do this very specific thing if you're not like mentally focusing on it or letting it happen yeah you're right. you're better off the, the, there is one counter example it seems to this which is people who are on like the cutting cutting edge of expertise so an olympic gymnast for example who has a particular routine that they need to do in their case repeating where they've already got the routine down but they need to like you know improve that little extra 0.001% in that case repeating the routine again and again and again and again that type of mass learning does seem to help for them but that's the that that's very much like only in that case it seems to be and their goal is a completely different yeah, thing in that case exactly anyway. their goal is perfection in this one particular thing which they already know really well they're not trying to learn how to do backflips and stuff they already know how to do that they're trying to learn like the exact timing of this exact particular routine that they know in advance they're going to do Mm-hmm. The nuances that'll get mm-hmm. them that extra tenth of a point. Mm-hmm. So, so what really shocked me when um, I was learning about this, and I, I spoke to Doctor Bjork about it, is I was convinced. I was like, okay, well, interval learning. I can understand why that would be good for, say, certain types of muscle memory, like sword fighting or learning different artists. But what about something like the timing of, of a particular? thing that you need to do like singing a song or learn learning a series of notes that have a time component to it not just a you need to get the notes right but you need to get them right in this particular time sequence right rhythm yeah in the right rhythm and i was thinking you know with that kind of thing you would think that you would want to have to repeat it again and again and again in order to like get it right the first time so, for example, if you're learning to, like, key in, like, sort of like a game of Simon Says, but with a time component also, where you're keying in, like, you know, red, blue, green, yellow, and mm-hmm. there's a time aspect, well, even that, it turns out, you do far better in an interleaved process where you're learning, like, 15 different patterns, and every time you'll have to, you know, copy a totally different pattern. Really? When you t- are tested on that... You still do better with interleaved learning, which so, is shocking. An, an example really I could surprising. think of would be somebody practicing for a play where they where the option might be to do one scene over and over again versus running through the entire play front to back over and over again. Yes, and and but I don't I don't know the answer to which is better. It based, just came to my mind based on what we currently understand probably going through the whole play would be better or maybe not even the whole play in order but certainly different scenes but practicing a scene again and again and again isn't necessarily going to be beneficial now just to caveat all of this the research done so far that's published is either all mass learning or all interleaved learning. There's been very little done that is a combination of the two things. And there is a possibility that 
doing, say, two trials of the same thing and then mixing it up mm-hmm. would be better because then you potentially are getting the benefit of the comparison type learning where you're like, okay, this is a Monet and I can see this other Monet and I see the similarities. But then you're also getting the difference learning, which seems to be the more important or at least more effective type of learning. Yeah, it seems like there's a gradient between the two and you could, you know, maybe argue or nitpick which type of learning is this thing that I'm doing if I show you two Monets at once or three Monets at once or yeah. five Monets at once? Well, so, so, at what point is it math? So here's the funny thing. The, the, the <laughs> unpublished research that has currently been done on this shows that even in those cases where you're doing like two Monets and that's it and then Versus you mix one. it up, even in those cases, the full interleaved is better. Really? But this is unpublished. There's There's doing initial trials. I have a feeling that there is going to be some balance where, you know, it's not only interleaved as good, that there there is some advantage to, to having them mixed up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I, would, I would also think that it's different for, like you said, physical activities versus something like learning a language or learning music. Right. Maybe masked somewhat masked would be better. I don't, I don't know if there's any research on that. That's actually a question I had. And it had to do with what you touched on before about sleep and how, you know, Mm -hmm. the different parts of the brain, you know, talk to each other in their sleep and kind of review things that they learn during the day. And I know that some research has shown um, that some types of learning, some things that you learn, either uh, motor skills or rote memory are, are processed at different times of the night. Um, in the in the sleep cycle, I don't. That is not my personal but, area of expertise, so I can't speak to that. That we uh, we can look it up and and like afterwards. I'll tell I've you. seen the research damn where it. they test people on video games and then they have them go to sleep, and the same fMRI patterns show up in their sleep as yes. as what are happening in the video yeah. game, and then they wake up in the morning and they're better at the game. Th- there is no question that there is an advantage to sleep. Uh, with all types of learning. And, and interestingly, it's not just sleep, but but um, let's say that you go to a class during the day, and, uh, and it, the class ends at 5 o'clock, and you've learned your stuff that you want to learn, and now you want to retain that. The best thing you can do, if you're not going to go home and go to sleep right away, is to go get drunk with your friends, or like take some benzos, or do something that will interrupt new learning. Hmm. If you go and you watch a movie with your friends, now you're learning something else and and that actually ends up inhibiting the learning that you've done earlier in the day. Right, so if you can arrange it, spend your last 15 minutes before going to sleep reviewing your material exactly. and hit, hit the sack and let it ruminate in your brain during exactly. the Exactly. Or just get drunk with your friends. Oh, there's our two-minute warning from the Skeptipus. Oh, nice. <laughs> Is that a purr? <laughs> I think he was purring. All right. Well, then let's uh, let's shift topics. And I want to bitch a little bit about agnosticism. So let me let me just throw out, or let me ask you guys first for some definitions, so that we can have maybe some common ideas of what you think agnosticism is in fifteen words or less. Go, Anna. Fifteen or less. Screw you. <laughs> so. Uh, from so it, it seems You've to be used all up over, your 15 exactly <laughs> 13 and a half so it seems to be sort of all over the map right 
you know, people have different ideas of what agnosticism and atheism are. They seem to have uh, different ideas of what, uh, you know, these things mean and what they mean to themselves. What do you the think the common definition is? The common definition seems to be that in the faced with the lack of specific actual verifiable evidence of a physical god uh, they can really take it or take or leave the the subject so I, I before i got into this topic a little bit i always thought of it as like this meter so if you picture you know this needle with a red zone and a, a green zone on the left you know on the left is atheism and then you move towards the middle, the needle goes up, and you're agnostic, and then when you hit full right, you're a theist. That's exactly what I was going to say. It bisects theism and atheism. Uh, but really, there there's some difficulties with that paradigm, because yeah. what that describes is belief versus disbelief. And atheism doesn't necessarily mean disbelief. It means non-belief. Yeah. So really what agnosticism uh, using that sort of common definition is describing is either a man made up God B I'm not sure if God is man made or if God actually exists or C God exists. And I think there's a problem in describing it that way because it's actually trying to answer two different questions. Question number one is, is, is there a God? And question number two is, is God made up by man? And those are two different questions which you can have an answer to that don't overlap each other necessarily. And I think theism and atheism is a binary proposition. So let's say you take the standard agnostic position that you're undecided, that you're in the middle of deciding on something for some time period. But my contention is, is that during that period of irresolution, it would be incorrect to say that positive belief is evidence in the mind of that person. You don't, you're, you don't have a theistic belief in your brain yet. It's not there. Correct. Thus making yes. you an atheist. Correct. So yeah. you can't be agnostic. You can't be stuck in the middle of belief and non-belief. There is no potential for that to exist in the brain of a human being. I, I mean, if you look at, at the, the, the Latin root of agnostic or Gnostic, it means like to know. So, so somebody who believes in God and knows that God exists is a Gnostic theist. Someone who um, does not know whether, it's, whether or not God exists but doesn't think they exist is an agnostic atheist. And that would get into the soft atheism Versus versus hard atheism. Right. So soft, you can be soft a atheism is, is you just don't have a belief of any kind about it about that subject you lack belief hard atheism is is you think god is made up by man which is a belief which is a belief it's an actual separate claim that's why i think it should be broken up into two questions hard atheism should not be a a, a name it should be it's is god made up by man that's a separate question so i kind of see there's three forms of agnostic one which is i don't know two which is we can't know right now and three which is we can't ever know and if you go to, if you go to the to the actual dictionary definition, which I would say is a little different from common usage, it says a person who holds that the existence of the ultimate cause as God and the essential nature of things are unknown and unknowable, or that human knowledge is limited to experience. So, with that definition in mind, it gets a little more specific that 
it's unknown or unknowable. But I think if you have no knowledge of God, you can't claim to be undecided. You have to be on the decided. There's there. You don't believe anything. Again, going back to the current state of your brain, you clearly don't have a positive belief when you don't know anything. So that leaves you atheist again, in my opinion. And then I just wanted to go a little bit and get even more at the at the root of the word, because I found this really especially interesting. So agnostic is from ancient Greek, obviously a meaning without and and gnosis meaning knowledge, which was used by Thomas Henry Huxley in a speech at the meeting of of the Metaphysical Society in 1869 to describe his philosophy, which rejects all claims of spiritual or mystical knowledge. Now, most people who are claiming agnosticism they tend to say things like, well, it seems like there's something out there in the universe, got, like love or connectedness or blah, 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 blah. And so I'm still unsure because I don't think human beings can know. But hold on. Huxley, the guy who had coined the term, says it rejects all claims of spiritual or mystical knowledge. Uh, he goes on to say uh, agnosticism, in fact, is not a creed, but a method, the essence of which lies in the rigorous application of a single principle Positively, the principle may be expressed in the matters of intellect. Follow your reason as far as it will take you without regard to any other consideration. And negatively, in matters of the intellect, do not pretend that conclusions are certain which are not demonstrated or demonstrable. What I think is interesting about this topic is that when some people claim they don't know anything about God, they're or that you can't know anything about God, what they're making is, is a knowledge claim about the entire universe. When you Precisely. say it's unknowable, you've just now stated that you know what every human being can ever know, it which is a pretty strong, it's probably the biggest claim you could possibly make, saying something's unknowable in all time and space. Well, well I, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. I mean, c consider that as scientific knowledge advances, we not only know more and more, but we know more what we don't know. That's what I was going to bring up. And, and, and then the interesting thing is that, like, no matter, like, imagine us, you know, billions of years into the future where we've, like, learned as much as we can about this universe. Perha perhaps there is some other universe that we still don't know about. So, so I sure. would argue that there's... That's not God. No, 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 that's not God, but I would argue... This is a that, parallel example, I that think. There yeah. is always going to be something that we don't know. And so, um, like Neil deGrasse Tyson says, you know, there's the God of the gaps. What, what God is gets smaller and smaller and smaller and, as and, our knowledge of science and, gets yeah, bigger and, and bigger and bigger. receding point of scientific ignorance. Exactly. Yeah. But, but then I don't think then that, say, that agnosticism is as big of a claim as you're, as you're saying, because I, I think that however much we do learn, there is always going to be something that we don't know. Well, okay. So to me, that just means you're making a, a more simple claim that you're ignorant. The, the word agnostic doesn't really make a lot of sense. So if you, if you say, you know, there's things that could be out there in the universe, uh, like I'm agnostic about which things I know nothing or have no concept of, or no, no attributes or characteristics of, I think you're just ignorant. And I don't think that's about God. 
I think you're grabbing together all the ignorance that's still left in the universe to, to the human brain and labeling it God, which really has nothing to yeah. do with the last 10,000 years I, of human existence and you. the word they use, God. I agree with you. I don't think agnostic has anything to do with God whatsoever. I think it's a totally separate thing. But it does in the dictionary, and it does in the... <laughs> keep, keep in mind that definitions are evolving all over, all over sure. time. Sure. Evolution and is a lie. what... Uh, <laughs> 6,000 years! <laughs> what, what we speak of as God and what we are, even in society, even allowed to speak of as God and form notions of as God is is different from what it's what it's been in the past as well. So even having this discussion is going to be unique in its own place and time. I guess I'm saying to have a claim that something is unknowable, however, has always struck me as um, hubris. Yes, actually. <laughs> It really has. Whether you're claiming it about God or whether it's somebody claiming it about claiming, you know, making claims about science. Well, science will never understand this. Well, we're we're about as far as we can go, and blah 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 blah. That that does seem rather arrogant to me. Let me let me give you a conversation I had. Um, can you tell me the type of God you're agnostic about the existence of? Specifically, what are the attributes and the characteristics <laughs> of that God? <laughs> And the answer I got was the supersymmetric nature of life and the self-replicating organisms uh, are awe-inspiring. And so perhaps there's an underlying divinity to reality. Not that it was planned by some omnipotent, bearded, anthropomorphic deity, but I leave open the possibility that consciousness is an eternal phenomenon and that we are by nature divine. I find all claims of the knowledge of the afterlife absurd, but I'm unconvinced that pure rationalism holds all the keys to the kingdom. And this is an agnostic? Yeah. Okay. An agnostic claiming person. So what, 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 to me, that, again, sounds like repurposing the God word and using it for something else. Well, it, it seems to me, though, like w one of the things that I was always amused by is it seems to me that most religious people should actually be agnostic by their own definition, because th the whole idea is faith. There isn't there should there should be no proof that God exists, but if you have faith and you believe, well, if there's no proof, then you can't know. So you must be agnostic, <laughs> but you, but you're believing. Right, so they right, lack actually, knowledge, and they confirm that they yeah, lack like knowledge. unless right. you actually like had a conversation with God. Like, and you absolutely know it wasn't an hallucination or something. Well, Joseph Campbell actually relates a really great story when he was, when he was a professor at, what was it, St. Uh, Mary's? Or, I, I forget the name of the school. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, he's, he's made a name for himself at this point, And a priest co comes up to him as he's by the, by the school pool. And he gets into, he, well, hello, Mr. Campbell. Uh, hello, Father. And they get into this discussion, and he says, I could tell where he was going with this and where he was trying to gently lead. And he said, finally, he, he came out with, with the question. And he says, well, Mr. Campbell, do you believe that there is a way to verify the presence of a physical God? And he turns to him and says, if I did, Father, what would be the value of faith? Oh. <laughs> Well, it was very nice talking to you, Mr. Campbell. I have to go. <laughs> but that gets that gets to what you're saying. Faith is an integral part of, you know, Christianity, Islam. If there is a way to prove the existence of a god, then one of the basic cornerstones of religion is just yeah. swept out. And in fact, people, religious people are chastised for requiring proof, right? I mean, aren't you considered to be a better person if you have more faith? 
which means you can go by less proof. Yeah, I've seen some of that where asking questions is kind of shunned upon because you don't want to get too into it. You want to have a strong, strong faith, and the less you know, the more faith you can have, right? Right. And then there's now. Ray see, Comfort. I recently, I <laughs> think, I think we'd be digressing <laughs> if we get into the faith discussion. We could definitely bring that up for another podcast. No, but what this, I think, what this argument says is that. Uh, and this is something I hear a lot when agnosticism is brought up and atheists correct you and say agnosticism is purely about knowledge. You can be an agnostic believer or agnostic um, atheist, um, and it should be completely separate from the God question. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys think that's proper or not because, uh, you know, colloquially, it's very tied to uh, the God question. It it is, but in common usage, you also see it used in like, ah, uh, what do you like that? You know, it's, you 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 hear about it in terms of, and I can, I don't have a, a, I'm not primed for an example right now, <laughs> but uh, I I have heard people describe themselves as agnostic about different preferences between Pepsi versus Coke. Exactly. Yeah, that is one of the lower definitions of the word, like down at number six. Right. Like, huh. All words have multiple definitions, but I'm sp strictly bringing up the one about God, no God. And not just God, but all spiritualism, right? Uh, any supernatural. Well, it's almost uh, like skeptic. Again, again, with the definition, it is, it is agnosticism is the view that the existence or non-existence of a deity is unknown and possibly unknowable. More specifically, agnosticism is the view that the truth values of certain claims, especially claims about the existence or non-existence of any deity, as well as other religious and metaphysical claims, are unknown and so far as can be judged, unknowable. So any form of divinity, whether it's a physical god, whether it's a bearded man, or whether it's some underlying force, you can't... Yeah. Once you're dead... You yeah, and I think, I think at the time he coined the word, there was just a lot less science in 1864. Hmm. Sorry, no. but new data has come in. <laughs> and most of the people who are agnostics are actually atheists. I think, strictly speaking, if you get into the root of the word, especially considering that his original root word rejected all mysticism. That, to me, was very interesting right there. And I think we're ready to move on to chemtrails and contrails with Anna. Or, as I like to call it, low-hanging fruit. <laughs> Um, yes, so what do you want to know? Ask me a question. <laughs> there was our time. That sounds like a very, very tiny jackhammer. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my topic's on contrails versus chemtrails, and I'm doing this because even amongst very bright people, um, and this is this is in no way a slam on those friends of mine who share my Facebook feed. Uh, there there is some <clears throat> confusion, let's say, and it's it's very uh, it's very animated confusion. So <sighs> contrails. Well, we'll begin with that. Um, it basically is the combination of two words: condensation and trails. And they are those streams of cirrus clouds that come out from either the wingtips or the wing flaps or the engines of planes as you see them through the sky. You know this, blah, blah, blah. Um, so basically, the main products of hydrocarbon fuel combustion are carbon dioxide and water vapor. And what happens is you have two different types 
of contrails, and they're triggered by two different things. One is a drop in temperature, and one is a drop in air pressure. So with the temperature one, you're releasing particulate and or, well, definitely and, uh, water vapor into an altitude that has to be below 40 degrees Celsius, and it's released into the troposphere at at least 26,000 feet. So what happens is this exhaust comes out of the engines, hits the air, it's very hot, but then it hits the very cold air, the water vapor supercools, and you have these condensation nuclei, and the water vapor freezes around them into ice crystals. And you get all these different altitudes of these planes flying. Now the other one is condensation from decreases in pressure, and that that emits, I'm sorry, from the wingtips or the wing flaps when vortices, as it's moving through the air, form kind of like a wake from a boat, mm-hmm. except they last longer. And the vortices cause a drop in air pressure, which causes a drop in temperature, which causes the same thing. It's like water condensation on a cold glass on a hot day. That's exactly the same thing that happens. But it's actually ice? But it's actually ice. So and when or, we look up and see jet trails in the air, that's ice. That's ice and water vapor. Sweet. So, so does the, cool. um, the the pressure weigh, does the, is there any um, fuel, like particulates in water in that one? Too, no, no, no. It's, it's just, just the pressure. pressure. It's just the air pressure from the wing tips and the wing flaps. Now, what happens there is that those wakes, uh, those trails um, form at lower altitudes. Mm. And it's usually at takeoff and landing. And they also last... For very little time. Ah, okay. But the one, the high altitude ones that you see, those are caused at, uh, you know, from from the long lasting and from exhaust. And why does that have to be? What do you say? Twenty two thousand feet. Twenty six thousand feet. Twenty six is that because that's generally speaking nine kilometers to seventeen kilometers. Nine kilometers over the poles, seventeen over the equator is the range at which it freezes. Oh, okay. At which it'll get really, really cold. Got it. And that's just from the drop in pressure combined with being far away from Earth. It's yada, yada. it's bas- it's just the, the drop in temperature. The drop in pressure is where you get to the lower altitudes oh, in the okay. troposphere. So, so that's a contrail. What's a chemtrail? Ah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> that's the con. So, that's the, that's the nice one. <laughs> Move. <laughs> so, chemtrails. Uh, I'm going to go back a little bit in the Wayback Machine to the halcyon days of the Clinton administration in 1996 when there was a report by, I think, the, U- the USAF, and they wrote a paper on... Uh, let me see if I can pull it up. Wasn't that when Thing is not Clinton responding. got taken over by the lizard people? The transhumanist New World Order? Yeah, that's that's actually listed as one of the things. So... um. The army, the the air force, uh, published a paper yeah, on. I wasn't kidding. Fictional, with a disclaimer saying these are some, these are some uh, uh, fictional things we could have in the year twenty twenty five, and they 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 made a full on disclaimer at the very beginning that said, by the way, these are just fictional, just so we have this clear. And they were talking about like, well, wouldn't it be neat to be able to cause thunderstorms over, you know, a drug cartel in South America? Blair, bitty, blair, bitty, blair. <laughs> and they're like, of course we can't do that, but it would be neat, basically. And after that, 
uh, people started calling in about like, what, wait, what are you doing? What it, wait, huh? And, and that was when the whole chemtrail conspiracy really took off. Well, did it exist before then, but that just gave it fuel or? Not as far as we know. Huh. And. So wait, the whole conspiracy started because the government opened its mouth and said something like, we'd like are, to control the weather. These are published papers. This is like, this is open for anybody to read at any time. That's kind of a double mind fuck right there. Because if the government but, was actually doing that, then they put out the paper knowing that they were actually doing it, which no, then gave away that they, they were doing it, which caused the conspiracy. But then the conspiracy theorists are always marginalized. So what they've done is they've eventually, they've actually covered up what they're doing no, by creating a conspiracy. They weren't. No, no, no. Here's, here's the thing. They Sorry. I'm trying to think like doing a conspiracy it. theorist. I don't right. think you they're like that well, smart. Here's, here's, here's the pro, here's the problem with anything because you know, the EPA and the national oceanic atmospheric administration and the FAA and NASA all came and published a report on contrails stating unequivocally, look, physics, Water condensation happens. Chemtrail. We're not spraying you people with anything. And the very fact that they came forward and said that they weren't doing it was actually seen as proof that they were by conspiracy theorists. <laughs> so I think the lesson for the for any government entity or any scientist is to come out and just say, yes, we are absolutely designing transhumanoid sea creatures to come and wipe out the human race absolutely definitely and that'll clear kill I, the conspiracy. I think we really need to learn to just ignore things like that because you know it's the don't think of a big pink elephant thing where you're just implanting ideas in people's heads and if they already have a distrust of the government they're going to switch right. it around anyway but well, the thing is too i mean it i mean they it states you know this report contains fictional representations of futures and are any similarities to real people or events other than blah 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 are unintentional right. are and are for purposes of illustration only I didn't mean, they, read skip to the good yeah, part. no exactly <laughs> but we but we know for a fact that the chupacabra exists because some woman saw species it's true it's the same thing and I'm right. sure that movie had the same disclaimer on it, but what does I, that matter? I didn't see a movie like that. Was there a disclaimer on the anyway. mermaids thing that just happened on Discovery Channel? Did, you, did anybody see oh, that? I heard about that. Apparently, like the most watched Discovery Channel show, and it was it was a, about a, mermaids. A so, what's, I'm sorry, is it Discovery Channel right. or TLC that has the Sarah Palin show? Uh, I don't watch it. TLC. I, so anyway, so what, <laughs> what's the most believable part about the chemtrail conspiracy? Is it possible? Really, like, nothing. Could they do it? No, because okay, here's here's and here's why, um, and I'll give you many reasons. First of all, if you would be spraying, if you were going to spray at twenty six thousand feet above uh, the surface of the earth, you are basically spraying tiny particulates into 30,000 feet of troposphere where they're going to be blown any which way. It's it's going to spread out in in and it's going to disperse. It's and going become... to disperse, and you have no way to control vertical wind shear. You have no way to control horizontal wind shear, and and here's here's another little fun fact: the higher you get in the atmosphere, not only do you get lower pressure, but you also get higher amounts of radiation. Hmm. Radiation kills 
a lot of anything that you could put up there. So you, when you get ex, when you expose things to UV rays, and I know that I'm just feeding a conspiracy theorist who's going to be like, "Aha, we're getting UV rays!" <laughs> but you're you know you're exposing things to many many more times uh, heightened and intense UV rays, and there's no way to account for how that's going to affect it. It would be like the mo- the worst way to spray chemicals on yeah, but How about our water ever. supply? Wouldn't that be a lot more efficient? I'm sorry? Well, our water supply? Wouldn't oh, that be a much more direct oh, path? Oh, I see. Much right. Rather than going 26 miles up and dropping it into 30 exactly. billion, billion tons of air and hoping that some like, particles stay together long enough right. to get to a human it, well, being. And it would, it would be akin to dumping, it would be akin to trying to poison us in our water supply by dumping something into the ocean, which is unpotable, but hmm. which might eventually go through the water cycle into a rain cloud which might travel over to Sierra Nevadas, which might get to your home. So, it's it's that random. So, Anna, what exactly are the people who believe in chemtrails saying that it is happening? That is... Okay, you want to talk about a grab bag? <laughs> so... Yeah, like what's their pick, evidence? Okay, so... Well, no, no, not even what's their evidence. Like, like do what, they have what, a government... What is, the, what is this government trying to accomplish? That's what I want to know, supposedly. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. so question. we'll start there, and then we'll start... We'll, we'll go to the evidence. So I've, you know, I've read up on this, and there are multiple hypotheses about this. So pick one. It's either the government or the uh, corporations, notably Monsanto. Oh, they're bad. Everyone knows um, that. HARP, High Frequency Active Oral Research Program. Oh, right, right, right. Um, the, they, they also mention AgroCorp and AgroGovernment and also the New World Order, the Illuminati, and the Elites. Ah, I like those ones. Are uh, either, again, take your pick, poisoning us with chemicals in order to control 90% of the population. Okay. Um, Wait, the poison causes low birth rates or, or autism or... Yes, and yes, and it idea? kills us off with, and you can find that because there's increased autism and increased respiratory illnesses. And is that just for population control? Because uh, no, clearly it's, all, it's not no, killing no, a lot of people since our population is continuing living to expand. Living longer, yes. So, so it's, it's population control. It's also purposely sickening people in order to get rid of the unwanteds. It's uh, to perform experiments on us one is uh there I, I found one that was well there's this brown dwarf that orbits the sun that we don't see that they're not telling us about brown dwarves have more radiation than yellow suns and they drop barium into the atmosphere to protect us from the radiation so they're a good there's thing. really no no I tried to find overriding themes with this. And well, I, was really I, I just want, I want to see like a government document, which, you know, has been leaked, which, you know, this is, this is what happens with real conspiracies is that sooner or later, some, some government employee feels guilty or decides to sell and leak some actual data, like a memo or something. Is there anything like that out there? Well, no. Um, Sorry. I mean, the, and the problem with this particular conspiracy is that it would, many, like, like many conspiracies like this, it would take the active and willing participation of every airline pilot, 
the FAA, the EPA, every aircraft mechanic, everyone who you know works at any atmospheric the chemists. thing, the chemists, physicists, everybody at NASA, everybody at NOAA, and everybody at the FAA. Uh, you know, I mean, down to flight attendants. And the sheer amount of people that would need to be keeping this secret would be just impossible. When yeah, you, they're, when you add they're to using that, regular air, airline. Right. Unless all those people just are getting a higher dose of the mind control agent, and so therefore it's that much easier right. to control them all. <laughs> right. And, and the word sheeple you gotta, comes you gotta, up you got to think about that. So, so, see, so, I didn't think about that. I, I, I have a question. That, that, I mean, okay. I see nothing to hang your hat on there. Like, no. If that's, I, I want to go in one direction, like let's say I think there's a conspiracy, like if you want to settle on something from all those options, you need to hang your hat somewhere. What, right. do, you, what do you hang your hat on? Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. I, I went looking for a theme that this was built around, and it was all over the map. So people just, and, and people will, will discuss it's, all of these things in the it's same breath. sort of. Right. Yeah. So part of, so one of the, one of the, one of, unfortunately, the side effects of not having a science literate population is that they'll look at pictures of things and just go oh well look at that you know so so one of the things that chemtrail conspiracy proponents say is well yes contrails exist and chemtrails exist but they're two different things contrails evaporate quickly chemtrails are those things that you see in the sky in the crisscross patterns and they're specifically doing crisscross patterns because there's specific patterns that represent whatever saturation or something. right problem is um, they're all contrails. What determines whether one evaporates quickly or whether it stays in the air longer is the air humidity, pure and simple. If there's more water in the air, it's going to stay around longer. If there's a high wind, it's going to spread out into, sh into sheets. If it's dry, it's going to evaporate more quickly. If there's relatively low wind at that altitude, very low wind shear, it's going to stay in a straight line for a longer time. It's just given that so it seems like this thing. is something anybody could kind of go out and do their own little experiment on. Yeah, and that's be like, hey, it's a really humid humid day. Let's look at a plane and see how long it sticks around. Do Do you but, have a truck on a cold day? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Go driving. Strange. You know, but, but, I mean, it's, yeah. It's, it seems all they would need to do is get a plane and say, can we make one of these long lasting? contrails that we know for a fact because we're controlling the plane and everything doesn't have any of this other stuff in it. That's and, why it requires all the airline pilots to be in on it. Right, but it, right. but I and mean stewardesses, like, flight attendants, yeah. sorry. But then you know but that's like the official like every single airline pilot ever including all the amateur airline pilots who have no affiliation with any big airline I mean like I think the only thing this proves is that not a single person who believes in this is a scientist. Correct. Or has any scientific training whatsoever. Well, it, oddly, some of them do. I have one friend who, you know, is, who was an engineer and is now fully in this, like, well, I don't know. It could be. So he's agnostic. It could be. He's agnostic. <laughs> that really segues into my topic. The, 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 problem, the problem. No, he's a conspiracy theorist. That's right. different than agnostic. Because conspiracy theorists have sp some specific things they like to say, like, well, I don't know. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> right. I'm just asking questions. 
So like, they you, don't he ask could have, questions. He could have molested his daughter, but I'm just asking questions. <laughs> The problem is they oftentimes aren't, and I have noticed that in these conversations when somebody brings up, like, well, water vapor and condensation, immediately it's, I mean, it, I, I don't frequent conspiracy hypothesizer websites much, but it was quite a shock to see, like, the, well, either you're a sheeple or you work for Monsanto. And it's, <laughs> it was like, I'm, I'm not using hyperbole on this. It's, it's yeah. a little bit nuts. But the thing is, people are so afraid that, you know, this big overwhelming thing is happening to them and in reality it's it's a uh, it's quite disheartening to just see how it's built on nothing it sounds like there are parallels uh, never mind two minute mark two, two minute mark any more questions yeah any wrap up comments that's I was just cool. going to say there's parallels, I think, between anti-vaccine, fluoride, any of these uh, large population kind of, the, the, they are trying to do this to us type of thing. Well, there, exactly. there is one interesting thing I think that we should consider, and that is given the recent revelations about the NSA spying, for example, we have come to a point in history where... Um, certain types of information can in fact be accessed by a very small number of people to the point where real conspiracies may in fact exist and you know clearly do the nsa spying was a conspiracy everyone was saying no 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 and it, wait when the, the just, that's, just, it's, just it's, it's been known that the nsa is spying for over 10 years no yeah. no no no, no. But, but but that. but the extent of what's happening in terms of collecting phone calls and prism and all yeah, this the stuff. Ex the extent came out but it was already known and suspected yeah. it was signed and in admitted law, to I mean, by knew. certain people yes yeah. yeah but the huge amount the fact that every american like every single phone call you ever made you start talking about things on that scale and you sound, you know, before this, you might sound like, well, you know, could they really be doing that? You know, is it really feasible? Well, some of this stuff is feasible now. So there's, I don't believe in con in chemtrails. And I would say I don't believe in probably any conspiracy theory that I can think of. But is it possible that we may, we may be segueing into a point in history where some of these things might actually be more believable because of the level of technology we have. I would I would see that I would see that logic and I would go go there with you. The um the problem is that we the problem that we face is that we live in an age where there's rapidly disseminated information that you can just get anywhere and people don't have the tools to say, okay, wait a minute, uh, this is coming from, I don't know, David Icke? Is this really someone that I need to, you know, and you, yeah. you know, cross-check your, your, your links. The other part of that, I mean, yes, it's, it is unfortunate. And getting back to the NSA thing, you know, the Patriot Act was signed, that was folded over into the Patriot Act, which was signed into law right immediately after, you know, the, that whole thing went down. 2005 or 2007, they discovered that, well, there, you know, phone companies are actually using the prerogatives mm -hmm. that were given in there. And it was like, okay, they're now these major corporations are collecting data on us and now it's all come back to roost yeah. and, oh well it's the government behind that what we could never have suspected so yeah no it's it's i think the funny thing is how uh uh 
there, there were revelations about uh, the U.S. and the U.K. spying on their allies at like G8 conferences and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, what? What? You were doing that to us too? I can't believe it. <laughs> I'm shocked. Shocked that gambling is going sure. on in this facility. You're winning, sir. All right, then. Moving on to our next topic. Let's go with Dangerous Dan. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about how your career influences your worldview, and um, this is interesting. It was a little oh, bit Wait, hard. hold on. I have to do another shot. Oh, yeah. Go for it. <laughs> Whatever that was you gave me is pretty yummy. Excellent. Fruity girly? No, licorice but, like, ah. smooth. All right, so th- this was a little bit difficult to do research on, but I had interesting... Uh, personal experience with this my hypothesis is that there is a correlation between the scientific nature of a career and the degree of skepticism in that person in that career um so can i just say i really like the fact that you just use the word hypothesis instead of theory nah yes thank you (laughs) continue so i went to tam uh quite a while ago i'm going this year too everybody should go yay go on i don't know what year you're listening to this go to tam this year uh, so, what is TAM for those? Oh, yes, know. the amazing meeting put on by James Randi uh. Educational Foundation. James Randi is a magician, um, and I'll talk about magicians a little bit too here. Um, so, what I noticed there is that I met a lot of people in computers. I'm a computer scientist, uh, software engineer. Yeah, I think it's more engineering than science, but. I met a lot of people in the computer fields. I met a lot of people in comedy, a lot of people in uh, magic, like magicians. And might have been because I'm in, I was in Vegas, but this trend seemed to kind of persist in my mind that these sort of critical or skeptical sorts of careers really breed skeptical people. So the thought came up in my mind, is it skepticism that draws you towards that um, career choice? Or is it the career that you happen to take that kind of makes you a skeptic? And what I found was kind of interesting. It's actually a lot less skeptical in those fields than I w- would have thought. So you can have scientists that believe in Bigfoot because that's not really the area of science that they're interested in. Um, and you can have uh, software engineers. So I was talking with people at work and, uh, you know, one thing or another comes up and it's just that one thing that they're kind of not skeptical about or lacking in skeptical inquiry or don't understand how they would apply the scientific method or engineering type of thinking to that topic. So I think that kind of plays on the idea that skepticism really isn't widely known and accepted as a topic. When I tell somebody I'm a skeptic, I often get the okay, what is that? Not not really sure. Some people think it's the people that do believe in Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster. Others are just like not sure if it's something to do with uh, God or my belief system. So I think it, it, you know, it plays to this podcast and that I think it's really important to get the word out about how skepticism sh- should influence all parts of your life and not just one. So I want to talk about engineering real quick and why I think that engineering, uh, software engineering specifically, really would um, kind of form a a skeptical mind at a high level engineer or software engineering is concerned with memory management speed and functionality you know does my program work and that's really where the skeptic part comes in is does this thing that i built work uh it's the same with any engineering i found a really good site uh, called sciencebuddies.org and they do a direct 
comparison between the process of engineering and the process of the scientific method. And it's really good. I, I'll have it in the show notes. You can look it up. But to run down the, the process of engineering, you define the problem, do background research, specify your requirements, um, create solutions, multiple alternative solutions, build a prototype, test and redesign, and then communicate your results. So you can tell it's a lot like the scientific method in that you're coming up with a problem or question and then kind of going through this rigorous method of solving it. The big point I want to point out is testing. So there's the, the idea in software engineering of builders and breakers. I build something and then I pass it off to a, sometimes they call them QA department, where they try and break it in every way possible. And I think that really correlates directly with skepticism. If you encounter something in, in your belief system or you know, in your life, you can take it and try and hit it from every angle to try and see if it holds up, try and see if it's valid. That's falsifiability. Right. Yeah, that's the peer review process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, the process of communicating results and seeing if other people get the same thing. So we don't have just one uh, breaker. You have like five breakers that try different things, and we know the different values that you can plug in and try and try. But yet, through that, there are people that understand this process, and they're really good at it in engineering, and yet they're not skeptical about other things. So I want to take... Um, Especially medical claims. Or government too i found oh yeah which if you think about it kind of makes sense it's not really something that uh you can apply an engineering method to uh to kind of solving so i found a really good study on magicians actually that showed the level of skepticism of different magicians so i thought this was really really interesting so they're most skeptical about things where so, so if you think about what a magician does, he, they're, they're fooling their audience, right? They're using science or some sleight of hand to fool the audience. So they understand how, how the brain works a little bit. They understand misdirection and how you can uh, kind of manipulate or fool somebody. So they're most skeptical about channeling uh, spirits, astrology, communicating with the dead. And then they're least skeptical about things like life after death, um, devils and angels, UFOs, ghosts, Bigfoot, which is kind of makes sense if you think about it. I agree. Ha- having a profession where you understand how people can manipulate other people doesn't really speak to the Bigfoot problem, you know? It, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, they can see how easy it is to be fooled yourself. So that would tend to lead them towards doubting their own beliefs. But when it comes to something like Bigfoot, it's not like they, you know, show people Bigfoot and fool them. But I don't know. That is kind of surprising to me because they know that it's our own. They must know that it's our own brains that are giving us these misperceptions. So it seems like a short leap to then use use that template on something like Bigfoot. But something like Bigfoot or UFOs, there's no person trying to fool you it's kind of does is this thing out there in the universe or not yeah this study is in skeptic magazine i'll also link to that it's really interesting so so some aspect of it could just be you know 
maybe they want this extra wonder to be out there. There's some there's some desire for the world to be more than, you know, just what's right in front of them. And so they're more willing to believe it. Yeah, but a lot of magicians don't have that because they've seen too many things which turn out to be false. Or they need the other agent that or agency which is the deliberate falsifier for for lack of a better term right so like somebody trying to fool them versus versus their own perceptions being being Big. fooled by themselves right well is bigfoot about misperceptions or isn't it more about like what evidence might be out there and do i believe it yeah, so studying something from a skeptical point of view, you definitely want to gather research, um, look to the experts on that in that field, and and then understand how to interpret studies based on, you know, result size, uh, peer review, to to you know come up with a good reliable evidence for or against something. So that's not something I think that directly correlates to many careers. Um, maybe specific hard science careers where you are all even then you're 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 probably like deep in the weeds trying to figure out one little scientific thing and you're not thinking more broadly about uh the research that has gone on for for um like bigfoot or ufos it just doesn't come up i'm i'm sure in most careers yeah like uh, astronomists and evolutionary biologists t- tend to be atheistic more than the average other scientists do. Scientists tend to be more atheistic than the general population is. And I'm trying to think of where engineers fell on that scale. And then and then you've got the elite of scientists, the, the people that are elected by other scientists to be at their highest, like at the national academies, mm-hmm. and those are 93% atheist. Hmm. Which is So that definitely is informing their worldview. Yeah, it's definitely affecting it greatly, especially evolutionary biologists. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating. And that was something that Neil deGrasse Tyson brought up was that the number is not zero at right. that top elite. No, it it acetose at like fifteen percent or seven percent, which is fascinating. And he brought up the very good question of why is that number not zero? Yeah, so. because people often form their most basic core belief systems before their reason comes online. True. I think the question was more rhetorical <laughs> that's how on you, his part than that's it was how you an end up with gay question. Catholics, gay self-hating Catholics. It's because <laughs> they learned religion before they learned their sexuality. So one comes online first, then the sexuality comes, and so you end up with gay self-hating. Catholics. Well, you can have right. two conflicting. Uh, you know, ideas in your brain at one time, and I don't know if it's necessarily healthy to live that way. So I also looked at, uh, speaking of atheists, comedians, a lot of comedians are atheists. Uh, so George Carlin, Penn and Teller, who are always at TAM, uh, Louis C.K., Bill Hicks, Ari Shafir. Uh, so, yeah, the list is, is pretty massive, and the prominent comedians, there's a lot of uh, atheist prominent comedians, and if you think about how they do what they do, a lot of it is looking at the world you know, rationally and real so that they're coming up with stuff that's true and really, um, really hits on what people know. Is it because they're looking at human behavior and picking it apart all the time? And yeah, I think that's a big part of it. That just lets you start to see through the, what people do to mess with their own heads. Yeah. Yeah. But what's interesting again, comedians, uh, these are atheists, not necessarily skeptics. So if you dig in and, and look a little bit about how, what these people think of other things, that um, a skeptic would, you know, be skeptical about. Again, it kind of falls apart 
um, as you go down the list. Oh, so maybe they just find the whole God idea funny. Well, it's so easy to make fun of. I mean, there's so many yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. Yeah. Keep in mind, as funny as comedians are on stage, many of them are dark, dark people behind stage, and the funny is, you know, yeah. a way of turning it. Yeah, so, right, it's right. there. It, they laugh at the human experience, so God doesn't really impress them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I could see that, and then that leaves them not necessarily skeptical at all. Yes, it exactly. It just means that the whole idea of a beneficent God when you're such a dark humorist is silly to those people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Caveat, I'm painting comedians with a broad brush here. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, so am I. <laughs> no, there's so, some so, really, really good Christian comedians. It, it seems to me... <laughs> <laughs> really, tell us more. Name one. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I know one. I just threw that out to see what is, your response would be. He is hilarious. Huh. But, uh, yeah. I can't think of any. Unless they can, you know, make fun of themselves really easily. Adam. Very much. Uh, so, so something that, about the way you were uh, talking about this, Dan, made me start to think that maybe what's going on is that in different careers, we... Uh, learn to use it's not that we become skeptical about one thing or another but that we learn to use different tools and different uh we're exposed to different types of information so for example a con artist might be very skeptical of like someone trying to convince them you know buy this house or buy a car and one-on-one but maybe they'll be more credulous about something else um so and and depending on what your own experiences are maybe it's not about a particular idea like religion or Bigfoot, but rather the sources of information that those things are based on. Right, exactly. It's the tools that you have and that you build in your nine to five, you know, what you do most of the time, that's going to bleed into the other parts of your life. And you're going to use those tools uh, where you see fit. And if those tools don't match up and uh, you're not, you know, well-versed in how to be skeptical about other topics, those tools might fail you. What I've, I've always found interesting is that you can take any particular occupation that specialized like an engineer and you can throw out a couple of, of the, of the things which those guys would laugh at as, as like stupid engineering mythology, you know, stuff that laymen believe and in their own specialty, they're very aware of those things because they're highly trained in it. And so they're, they're totally annoyed by them, but then they, but then you jump over an occupation and and they think those people in that occupation, which don't believe certain things about that occupation, are totally wrong. <laughs> and, Can you give an and, example? And or? I find, well, I just find it interesting that the people that study the way the universe works don't buy God theory. Generally speaking, they're less likely to buy that. It's it's like a mechanic is less likely to buy in, in, into a holistic muff, muffler mm-hmm. shop, okay? The same way an astronomist doesn't buy into the God idea. And yet we get all these people that are specialists and they think, you know, I know what's mythology in my profession, but no one else in their profession knows what mythology is about their own. Somebody has to stand up to these experts. That's right. Yeah. That's a great quote from some politician. I can't remember who said that. It's the, uh, the head of the, the board Texas, of yeah, yeah, Texas, Texas Board, board of, of Education. Education. Oh, yeah. God. Somebody has to stand up to these experts. <laughs> so Yeah, that just floors me that you can, you know, 
you can watch a movie and go, oh, they totally got that wrong. But I'll believe the rest of all the other stuff about other occupations where, you know, they've gone off track. Yeah. I find I'm often um, surprised at how non-skeptical certain careers are like doctors. There are doctors that believe the most ludicrous things. I mean, even even to some extent within their own careers, doctors that 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 are like, yeah, alternative medicine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's it's great stuff, and they'll go on about you know some basically magic. And these these are doctors who shall remain Doctor Oz, or no, no, these are I, I'm not going to name them. They're, these these are various <laughs> people I, I've met in my life who are medical medical doctors. And um, I, I think part of it is because the training that a medical doctor receives has nothing to do with being skeptical. Or critical thinking. Or right. critical. Yeah, no, you're taught, here's... They get some of it. I mean, they do get the scientific process. Yeah, again, you the do get the when tools. You're, when you're practicing medicine, that's it leaves behind the scientific process. Um, True, but it seems like maybe that would be more of your mechanic uh, example. I mean, that's a hands-on. These are the workings of the human body. It's not as much of a template of how to go about investigate, investigating and discovering something. So it seems like that would yeah. sort of, and, and, and especially be with our current knowledge of human biology, there is so much we don't know. Where you know, yeah. and the doctors. I mean, most people probably don't realize this when they go to the doctor, and the doctor says you have X, Y, Z, or take this that's an educated guess it really is an opinion and that's why really like when you get something the serious, art of medicine you need a second opinion yeah it, it, <laughs> i medicine, don't want medicine that's art Thank medicine currently is an art <laughs> yeah I, I think happy, it is an art happy right? i would pills, like to move happy little pills <laughs> And, and and a lot of uh, the funny thing is a lot of medicine that we use on a daily basis to treat various things, we have no idea how it works. We know it works. We don't know why. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. L- lithium is a perfect example for treating um, bipolar disorder. Oh yeah. If you get if you get into brain chemistry stuff, you're it's all shotgun approach. Uh, yeah. Like. Let's just blast something in the brain and it has 50 sub effects and one good effect. Awesome. And the, the interesting thing is being in medicine, there's constantly new, amazing discoveries. Mm-hmm. So there's things that... that well, are, according com- to the media. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I don't but, know but if they're amazing, actually. <laughs> I, I mean, so for example, I, I think that at some point in the future, we will have synthetic blood. I can't say how far into the future that will be, but we're working towards it. It's not an unsolvable problem. Okay. And that will be an amazing, once we've got synthetic blood that works, that will transform medicine in a lot of ways. Um, also, various types of imaging technology where you can like look into somebody's body and pinpoint exactly, there's the tumor. That's what we need to do. Here's how we're going to approach it. We'll you know, shoot all these little bits of radiation at it from 100 different places, and we'll kill the tumor without any type of surgery. So there's like the, if you look at where medicine is now compared to where medicine was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it's vastly advanced, and, and the rate of advance is only increasing. I mean, we, we now have um, reasonable for be, the reasonable beginnings for a, a retina imp, a retinal implant for the blind, mm-hmm. where you're actually putting something on the person's non-functional retina to give them sight. 
Uh, it's it's a digression. That is pretty yeah. Well, no, no, no. So, so, I, I could go right into that topic. Uh, I'm, too. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there. I'm just gonna say that that it's interesting to me because you then have people in the medical field with these two things. One is their training is not specifically about being critical, and two, they're in a field where there's constantly advancement and all these new things happening. And so I think in some ways it makes for people who are very credulous and willing to believe all these different things because, well, they've been trained already to believe all these different things. Mm -hmm. That's pretty fascinating. That's awesome. So I want to mention also... You know, one side of it was I looked at fields where I thought there was a lot of skepticism in science, and I found that it's a lot more or less skeptical than I thought. I also looked at fields that I thought were very non-skeptical and kind of found the reverse-ish. So I looked at sports and uh, psychics, which I think psychics is kind of... (laughs) Just a little bit. <laughs> so in sports, I think we all know baseball players, I think, are notorious for um, finding meaning in random sequences. Uh, you know, they have the lucky socks or the lucky shoes, and they're convinced that they're smart enough. To... Yeah, but that actually works, so that's a tough example to give. Well, it, you know, the, the classic idea is the idea of a hot streak. So if you think that... You oh, know, yeah, basic superstition is rampant mm-hmm. in sports. Yeah. So if you if you hit like three baskets in a row, you think you're on a hot streak and you're going to have a higher percentage over the next, I don't know, 10 minutes. And, it, you know, if you look at the data, it's just not there. Just, Completely wrong. Yeah, people right. do not get on hot streaks. Um, Same problem that gamblers run into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Just looking for the pattern. And even the, there's a study I found where they told people this is a random number or had them flip a coin. And even though they know it's completely random they'll still think they're smarter than the randomness and look for patterns, find patterns, and then predict, make, make a prediction that they think is a valid prediction. Which yeah. we're hardwired to do, so yeah. it makes sense. I mean, there are parts of the brain that actually, that is what they do. They are prediction detectors. Yeah. And in fact, people can end up learning things and learn to accurately predict things that are fairly random without knowing that they have learned that. So mm. you have unconscious learning of these random statistical effects that is actually happening in the brain. Wow. But that's then awesome. there's also a lot of false positives. Exactly. Is, and that's which the problem. Is an is you evo- get... evolutionary advantage, though. Yeah. So you don't get eaten by... Yeah, so a, yeah. A, a good example is if you just think about flipping a coin, and if you hit heads six times in a row, what's the next one going to be? You're like, it's due for a tail. It's like, it, it's got to come up when the, you know, the odds are 50-50 every time you flip. So no, they're not. Actually, yeah, that's that's not true. <laughs> Flip, flipping, I think you end up with a slightly better odds to get the opposite of what you started at. Is that right? I was well, thinking no, about it, this. It depends on the coin and the weight of the coin. Speaking, every time you for, flip, for, it should be for random. a quarter. I think. Uh, I, was reading it, was I think I heard for a, for a penny, the head side is heavier, so it'll if land you spin tails it, up. Yeah, if you spin oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's maybe so that's before on, we on get too far into the weeds, <laughs> why don't we bring this back around to the uh, field Thank you for you redirecting us about. to the point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sorry. So, uh, <laughs> the host over there. Anna, thanks, Anna. <laughs> so, so, yeah, players, uh, uh, I found a lot of examples where they are very skeptical, and it, it, that's not a very scientific field. And yet it is. You know, there's a lot of science that goes into uh, the mechanics of, for example, in baseball, how you throw, how you swing, how you want to work out and and get your body in shape. And then I found this amazing website called SkepticalSports.com. 
where uh, it's basically a statistician analyzing the data of uh, different players. So often in the media, uh, the commentators will say a lot of stuff about the stats that really doesn't add up. They'll say, you know, LeBron is on a hot streak or LeBron is, is, is doing crazy well in this, you know, field goals or, or, or not field goals. What does he do? Free throws. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, when the, the data just doesn't isn't isn't analyzed properly, or it's not it's not looked at the right way, and you really need a qualified statistician to to parse these things out. So there is science in those fields. Yeah, but basically, if you're in sports, you're screwed. It's a it's a pattern recognition rife. It is so, it, so occupation, it and you Silver. are going to be that's exactly highly superstitious yeah, yeah. if you are a sports person. <laughs> Sabermetrics and politics. <laughs> and that is true. It is biased. So then similarly, similarly in the field of psychics, that actually Skeptic Magazine did a little thing. Michael Shermer did a 10 steps to being a psychic thing where, you know, he goes through how to do a good cold reading. And the interesting thing there I found was even after people knew who he was, what he's doing, that he's faking a cold reading, I'm going to manipulate you, they still believed that he was actually... Doing something supernatural. Psychic, yeah. Yeah. I, I have a friend. I've told Storm about this uh, before. I have a friend who's convinced that I'm psychic. And, <laughs> and she'll, she'll call me up at random times and just ask me a question, yes or no? And, and I'll give her an answer. It's like, oh, you're always right. Or like, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out which guy to marry, A, B, or C. <laughs> which one should it be? And, and, wow. and I'll, I'll give her an answer. And then... Like, she's convinced I'm right about all this, and I'll explain my thought process behind the answer I'm given. So you're logically deducing it. You're not just randomly... I I mean, part of it is random guessing, but yeah, there is some logic to, like... And his unconscious intuition. Yeah, exactly. But but I'll explain to her what I'm thinking and the process I'm going through, and she's like, oh, you're just trying to, like... Rationalize. Know, rationalize this yeah. mystical power. <laughs> just, just don't try to justify your powers. That's, just live with them. That's frankly a little bit creepy. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> that's interesting. So yeah, even in in the field of psychic, I found uh, that you can be skeptical, and uh, you can definitely be better if you understand how the brain works and the psychology behind what you're doing, and you can perfect the skill. And I think when people ask me. When I say I'm a skeptic, people usually say, what are you skeptical about? And I say everything, because there is nothing off limits from skepticism in some way or another. Yeah. I like that. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. We appreciate you coming out. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. You came out on the show? Whoa. Congratulations. Hey. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for opening your brain holes. We always appreciate your feedback. Email us at skeptopus at gmail.com. Visit our website at www.skeptopus.com. And subscribe to us on iTunes for links and sources in the show notes. Now go out and make a fundamentalist cry by asking too many questions. (laughs) 